Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Christy Jansen, Chief of Staff at the World Business Academy. And I'm here in a virtual room, thanks to Zoom, with Ronaldo Brudico, the Academy's President and Founder, and Benjamin Schwartz, who's producing the show today. The World Business Academy is a 501c3 nonprofit action incubator dedicated to elevating the consciousness of people in the business community and encouraging business leaders to use their power and influence to take greater responsibility for the communities and the environment their work touches. We are recording the show on May 2nd, 2020. Please forgive any audio inconsistencies, for as I mentioned before, we're taking the social distancing recommendations to heart and recording this podcast from our homes. Before we get going, I'd like to invite our listeners once again to reach out to us at info at worldbusiness.org. If you have questions or comments about the show today, or if there's something you want us to discuss in future, we'd love to hear from you. I'd also like to ask our listeners to support this podcast, however big or small. If you have the means and you appreciate what we do, please make a tax-deductible contribution to the World Business Academy at worldbusiness.org slash donate. If you don't have the means but you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening. It will help us out. As always, you can listen to us on the go using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio. Just search World Business Academy. Well, Christy, thank you for that introduction. And I want to especially thank you for uh, making a comment about contributions. Uh, I've never done that before, and probably it's past time I should have. Uh, it takes a lot, not only your time, Benjamin's time, and the staff of the Academy to help put these shows together. And that editorial content doesn't come without a price. We have to pay for it. We have to pay salaries. And particularly in the time of COVID-19, and everybody's trying to make men's meet, us included, we're a nonprofit that has to rely on other people's generosity. So for those of you who are still at home and white-collar job, maybe still employed, for those of you who still have the financial resources that you could afford to give us a small contribution, preferably every month, you know, $5, 10 $15 a month, we would appreciate it. Or even better, $5 per show. I think it's worth more than that to you. But uh, if you were interested in making even larger contributions, $25 and up, please let us know because then we can issue you a tax certificate that you gave a nonprofit contribution to the World Business Academy. And if anybody listening to this has the ability to put up something in the range of one to $5,000, please contact uh, me or Christy directly at the World Business Academy. Uh, you can find us at I'm uh, uh, Ronaldo at worldbusiness.org. Christy J at worldbusiness.org is hers. And uh, talk to us. We'd like to know if you can help support some of our really incredible editorial outreach programs, which include this program, our weekly radio show, our <clears throat> weekly column in the Montecito Journal, and the number of papers that we publish, uh, the Optimist Daily. There's a whole variety of things we do with editorial content that requires a lot of money to keep it all coming. And it's all really great content. So I'm hoping that others will want to join with me and a few of us that are helping to support this good work in the world. And with that, let's launch into how successful the current administration has been at beating COVID virus. It's a success story. That's, that's what I heard. Yes, it was a big success story because, see, it's not going to get to a million dead. It's certainly going to get, I believe, past 100,000. That, I think, is not 
unfortunately even likely to stop it at 100,000. We're we're sitting here today. We're at uh, I'm I'm going to say that certainly by we'll be at 70,000 dead within the next three or four days tops. And by the time you know this takes this show takes a day or two to turn right. around. So by the time people listen to this, we'll probably be at seventy. Yeah, and, and you can always look it up every day. There's, there's easy ways to look that up. Now, I don't take any. There's no joy in Mudville that the uh, that the death count is so high. Uh, by the way, I think there, it, it, the statistics I like to look at are death per one million population. And when you look at some of those statistics, you see that the the states that have done the most vigorous job of imposing uh, social distancing. Uh, California, for example, have dramatically, by a multiple of 5, 10, 12 to 1 times better than the states that did not do it well. The other thing you'll notice when you see those death rates is that they're rising. So in a place like Texas, which had its highest death rate ever yesterday, we're recording today on May 2nd. On May 1st, they had their highest death rate ever, and it's climbing, and they've reopened Texas. I can't imagine what's going to happen down in Georgia, frankly. And clearly, we know what's happening in the smaller states with very, very inadequate rural hospitalization efforts. Uh, I, I just think we're going to see a lot of pain. I'm really glad that the New York, the epicenter, is continuing to get better every single week. Um, I know that Governor Cuomo is still upset that they had uh, 200 and what, 30, 229 people die yesterday, and he'd like to have that number be 10 times lower. But compared to the 1,200 a day who were dying, and when you look at his curves and how he's flattened that curve, how they, they, by the skin of their teeth, they were able to avoid overrunning their medical establishment, and that with 75,000 volunteers that came from all over to help them. Uh, when you look at how the juggling they did to get all those, that, that, that wave of people coming through, and when you look at all the, the issues associated with inadequate PPE for people administering tests and for people who are first responders, it's not surprising so many of them are getting effect, infected. It's quite, quite tragic. I'll come back to New York in a little bit, but I want to just start with the fact that it's clear those states which have chosen to try to solve their economic problem, quote unquote, before they solve their physical or medical problem, in my humble opinion, it will fail. And it will fail in sad and tragic ways. And if we look at history, I think that in the flu pandemic of 1918, the cities that were the most uh, locked down, who really took that social distancing and did it for a long time, they they had tremendous economic resurgence compared to the places where they were very, they didn't take it that seriously. Uh, St. Louis versus uh, Philadelphia. Exactly. I was just classic example. Classic example. That Philadelphia St. Louis graph where you just see, you know, Philadelphia just shooting through the roof and huge number of people infected, huge number of people dying. And St. Louis with this very, very low, extraordinarily low. Yeah. A gentle curve. And it's not so. Over time, you're still going to get more deaths or you're still going to have, have people who are suffering. But because the hospitals won't be hit the way that they were hit, like in New York, for example, or in, in Italy, in northern Italy. And also, the more we understand this disease, the better the treatments are going to be, the more chance we have to yeah, give I, you the best chance. Yeah, I want to just challenge that because that's, that's a commonly held view that um, flattening the curve, as it's called, doesn't really change the number of total dead people. It just stretches it out so it doesn't overwhelm the medical system. I know that that is true. It stretches out, doesn't overwhelm the medical system. The part that is not true is I'm not sure that it isn't going to get better in a couple of years. In other words, if we keep flattening the curve and keep pushing it down, we could, and this is the position that um, uh, Hearn in, in, South, in New Zealand's taking, if we can keep crunching this down to where it's almost nobody, I think she had a total of 
five infections all last week, then we can put the resources of society on those infections to do contact tracing on them, and we keep the genie in the bottle. In fact, her goal is zero infections, which I think is an astronomical goal. But the idea that getting the infection rate down so low that we then can focus on the infected, we can focus on quarantining them and away from their families. As Cuomo observed this morning, we don't know why they still have 900 people coming in every day into New York City hospitals. Is it because people brought the illness home? One point, choice. Is it because they never sanitized um, the MTA until this morning? So that people riding to work were getting it? We don't know. But we do know this. 900 people a day coming in every day fresh, although way down from the peak, is still too high. Intubations are also down, which says something. And by the way, with, um, uh, I hope I pronounced it right. Resetivir, the drug? Remdesivir. Remdesivir, thank you. Remdesivir um, apparently has two benefits. One is apparently it does shorten the cycle of, of illness, which means it shorten your hospital stay. It doesn't yet seem to have any correlation to reduce death. So it, it, it looks to me like it's going to end up in a cocktail of drugs. Remember when AZT came along and we said, you know, we can't cure AIDS with just one drug. We'll have to do with a cocktail. My guess is there's a cocktail coming for us. And when it gets here, if the infection rate is low enough in society as a whole, where it's down to a very small number and where we are contact tracing every single person who came in touch with each afflicted person, and each afflicted person is living in an isolated environment until they're, be- you know, two weeks until they're well, which the state should support. They should pay for that. It's entirely conceivable we would get this under control so well that people like me with serious preconditions and age as a factor would be able to go out in society again. Now, I don't expect that to happen in the next two to three months or four months, but I think in a year or two it could. So if we keep flattening the curve, we keep reducing the presence of the ambient virus in our population, I think it could actually save lives as well as defer over over running our medical system. I just think that's a possibility. A good one too. Good. Now, what about all these, all this pressure to reopen the economy? I mean, and and what are your thoughts on the economy in general, Ronaldo? Yeah. Okay. First of all, the economy is still in free fall. You got to start with that. In other words, nothing this administration has done yet is going to reduce the free fall the economy is currently sustaining. What the administration, primarily through the F, uh, through the Federal Reserve Bank, has been doing is flooding the market with cash. To the point where the stock market thinks no matter how stupid they are, no matter how much money they throw at dumb companies that are going to go broke, uh, they can't possibly get hurt because there'll be so much cash to mop everything up. That's just not true. You've got a lot of companies out there that even with bailouts are not going to make it. Just simply are not going to make it. And some because they were weak to start with. Some because they were resisting the changes that the society is pushing them towards. Oil would be an example of that. Some because um, they didn't want to give up what they knew, internal combustion engines, for what they don't know, electric engines. And the car companies that haven't made that switch are getting hurt much worse. Interestingly enough, and I'm not a big Tesla fan, as listeners know of this this, uh, program, but Tesla stock price is starting to recover because people realize they only have electric cars. And all of a sudden, because General Motors and Ford and other big car manufacturers are in deep yogurt and are going to have a hard time staying in business, unless they do massive trimming and redirect those huge organizations to something that's sustainable, i.e. the electric cars of the future, Tesla's all of a sudden looking like king of the mountain. And so I just I want to share with people that <clears throat> it is too early to go back in the market, as we said last time. 
Uh, but with the unemployment rate, which is now over 30 million people in the last six weeks have filed for unemployment. And I want to take a bow for this because last week on the show, I said, you know, I can't, I don't see this unemployment rate stopping from its rise. In fact, I think there's going to be at least 3 million more people will file next week. And sure enough, 3 million more people filed, 3.8 to be exact. Uh, I don't think that's the end of it. I think it's slowing. I'll be looking for 1 to 2 million more next week, but it won't be 3 to 6 or whatever. And, and the reason is we're now having all sorts of collateral damage. So the, the organizations that got hurt the worst initially, bars, restaurants, theaters, etc., closed. Well, that, that's fallen off a cliff. Okay. The secondary effect of that is all the people without money who aren't going to be able to buy as much in the way of cars. Now, cars have fallen off the cliff. And what you're going to see is a series of other industries, farming, starting to fall off the cliff. I want to come back to that. You're going to see food chain issues falling off the cliff. They don't need to, by the way. None of this needed to happen. That's what's so insane. Because with a judicious use of the Defense Procurement Act of 1950, we would have already organized the manufacture of reagents in massive amounts, testing kits in massive amounts, ventilators in massive amounts, PPE in massive amounts. We could have done it. We should have done it. We still could do it if we turn the, the economic industrial might of America towards these problems. Only the president can do it. I mean, you mentioned the Defense Procurement Act, which I think what happened last week, meat packing plants were required to stay open because of uh, it's a food supply issue and that's an essential service. But the way I was reading that is that he's protecting the meat packer owners at the expense of the meat packer employees. Oh, no question. And he even said, he, he said why he did it. I want to help them with their liability. So he was afraid. If he didn't do something like this, they'd get sued into the ground. And they would, by the way, because they deserve to be. They are not taking care of worker health. And by the way, not one meatpacking plant in America has yet been willing to disclose the full results of their internal testing at this time. And many of them are refusing to do internal testing. So what it tells you is they know what they're doing. Now, they've put up some plastic partitions. Good. They've got people making wearing some face masks now. Good. They've got some shields. That's going to reduce the problem. It's not going to eliminate it. That's one example. I'll give you another one. And I think I mentioned this last week. The, we are having our lettuce picked by people who probably have coronavirus and our raspberries and our strawberries. Now, I'm one of the only guys I know who absolutely sanitizes everything that comes in this house, including fresh vegetables and strawberries. I just sanitized a bunch of raspberries and blueberries not more than half an hour ago. And so, and you can do it, but you have to do it. Why? Because the person who picked that raspberry, good chance. I would say 20% chance, if not higher, that they have COVID. Ronaldo, how's that Lysol tasting? <laughs> I don't do it with Lysol. I'll tell you what I do it with. And my secret is I use a 3% per, uh, peroxide uh, to, uh, so if you have a 3% hydrogen peroxide bottle, which is typically how they sell it at a, at a drugstore, you can get 6%, which works even better, but 3%. Uh, and you mix it equal parts water to hydrogen peroxide, and you take a vegetable, like a strawberry. I put them in a little strainer, and I pull them through the water for just like that a few seconds. And I pull them out, and I instantly rinse them off. No taste deterioration, no deterioration in the quality of the produce. No and I do that with lettuce. I do it with everything. Why? Because it only takes one little molecule that's one one-thousandth of a human hair wide to kill me and my wife. <laughs> it's just that simple. I'm motivated. <laughs> So, I, so I'm really, really intense about this. But my, I want to go back to the unemployment. So unemployment is this huge problem. There was a good article written recently 
uh, I believe it was in The Economist, about why is it that the stock market is not reflecting the fundamental reality that the economy is in freefall? That's a question that I've been Yeah, and the answer, and I, I just touched on part of the answer, which is the belief is that with the Fed providing unlimited liquidity, it's impossible to screw up. And that's where the market's wrong. And I'm going to come back to that in terms of REITs in a second. Because it doesn't figure. In other words, you cannot continue to buy and sell the stocks of companies which ultimately are based on profits if the underlying economy that those stocks relate to is nosediving or tanking. Now, when this free fall is over, and it can, it can happen several different ways. It hasn't happened yet. And the administration has not been doing anything to help it. Everything they've been doing has been hurting it, including encouraging states to reopen too soon, which will further compound the economic problems into the future at a much higher rate. So the states like New York and California and Washington, they're doing it right. The trouble is they're part of a U.S. of A, and that's going to make it harder. Now, on that on that subject, the the, the states have started, because it's, it's obvious you can't rely on the federal government for any help at all, and in fact, they're making it worse. I mean, when they when they compete with you to buy PPE, in the open market, forcing a gouging of pricing. And then when, when you do get a contract to buy it, they steal it. Yes, exactly. They, they, they take it in. Yeah. That's what happened. And uh, that's why Maryland, the governor there, yeah. was very circumspect. Well, he didn't want it to come through Washington. Well, that's a great story. Now, governor Hogan um, <laughs> is married to a Korean woman. So through her Korean contacts, he was able to obtain a plane full of test kits. He told the plane to land at Boston, Baltimore International. No Korean planes ever landed because they always landed Dulles. But he told them to land at Baltimore so he could have the Baltimore, the Maryland National Guard meet the plane on the tarmac, which he did with armed troops because he was afraid the feds would show up and try to seize the cargo. He then took it to a secret warehouse which sits to this day until it's all used up. And he won't tell anybody where it's at because he's afraid that the feds will try and steal it like they've done it for everybody else. Now, Causing that amount of chaos and disarray is insane. Now, what Trump doesn't realize, because he doesn't understand economics, he doesn't realize he's making it worse for himself. He's making it worse for the economies. And, and so instead of having this thing start to get handled health-wise so that we can start to rebuild the economy, Trump is making it worse. So he's going to push this problem way past November. Now, there may not be an election in November, but if there is, Remember that chant by Ronald Reagan's people, are you better off today than you were four years ago? Well, 70,000 dead people are certainly going to say no. And I'm going to say the relatives of 70,000 dead people are going to say no. And I'm going to say all the people who got COVID, even if they survive, which is over a million people, are going to say no. And then all the people who are suffering in this economy, which is probably at the very least the 30-some million that are unemployed, but my guess is it's more than that. It's probably well, close. It's the, it's, I, that's 20% of our working population. And I think 50% of households in the U.S. now have somebody who's either gotten reduced hours, reduced wages, or lost a job. 50% of America. At that, at that rate, you, you should be putting 100% of your energy, fix the medical problem fast as you can, and fix the economy as fast as you can. The administration is shooting itself in the foot in both directions. It's making the health, the pandemic worse, and it's making the economics worse as a result, too. So we're sitting here with these states having to come up with something on their own. What do they come up with? Well, they came up with compacts. So it started with Cuomo in New York, and so the uh, the the Eastern Compact has got New York, and it's got a pen, it's got uh, New Jersey, and it's got Rhode Island and Delaware, and we can give you the list of the states if anybody wants, and we'll send it to you. What Cuomo said is we need to have a regional wide solution because people are going to drive back and forth. If the governor of New Jersey opens up New Jersey and they're allowed to have bars there, well, that's only a twenty five minute ride 
from Manhattan. So people are going to go to the bar and bring the disease back to Manhattan. So you need a regional solution. So he launched a regional compact. We'll come back to that in a second, what a compact is. And, and that has 54 million people in it, roughly. That's a lot of people. Then the Western Compact, which is California, Oregon, Washington, and was recently joined by Colorado and Nevada, represents 61 million people. They're doing a regional-wide solution. And then the Midwestern Pact is about 57 million people, which is Illinois, Wisconsin, Ohio, interestingly enough. Uh, Indiana, interestingly enough, is in that one. So there's what, these, what are these compacts about? Well, prior to the Revolutionary War, all of the colonies, for a period of decades, had compacts between themselves for various purposes. And what it is is a way to reach an agreement with your neighbors so you will jointly regulate something, and you tie your hands so you can't then regulated a different way. In the Articles of Confederation, the uh, the federal government was really negative on compacts because they saw it as a threat to the federal government. And they made a very, very tough set of rules prohibiting compacts. When the Constitution was adopted in the 1880s, what they found it, the 1780s, what they found was that it was too tight. There is a um, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3 statement that says, and I'll read it, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, enter into any agreement or uh, compact with another state. However, when they wrote that, they were thinking of overseas effects. So basically, the, the Congress was saying, we want to be sure that they don't have their own military waging war on France. Uh, and we don't want them to have diplomatic you know, passports for New York that are different than the ones from Maryland. So it, it, it stayed a tense Federalist kind of standoff until 1893. When a Supreme Court case called Virginia versus Tennessee came down, in which it said, you know, Congress can give its consent in many different ways. If a compact is formed for a useful domestic purpose and the Congress doesn't actively choose to stop it, that's implied consent. That's what Virginia versus Tennessee says. Uh, and they took it even further. In fact, I, one of my favorite ways of looking at the law on this is I think one House of Congress, meaning the House of Representatives, could actually approve of a compact, and it would be valid and binding, which is kind of cool. So what they've decided to do with these compacts is their response to unemployment, their response to the economic crisis, is let's come up with regional-wide solutions because the federal government is not only neutral, they're probably a negative factor right now, and we got to get out of this ourselves because it's our people that are dying in New York and in California, not people that uh, are dying in the president's backyard. Although in Mar-a-Lago, you could argue they're dying there too. So here's, here's where I come out on this. The economy can't start to really repair itself unless you come up with a solution for how you're going to manage the pandemic, which as yet has not happened. Uh, there are many different ways that you could do that. For example, if we did use the Procurement Act, if we used it to authorize FEMA to create a force, in fact, we could hire a lot of people to do this, that they would then deploy to the farming states and provide transportation of all the vegetables that are being plowed into the ground. All the, um, you know, I just read today that a whole bunch of chickens are being slaughtered because they don't want to feed them because they're not going to be able to process them in the packing plants. Uh, you've got milk being, you know, poured down the sewer by the gallon. At the same time, we have hungry people, which is really kind of amazing. At the very same time that we have hungry people. So what we have to do is we have to say, is there not a more intelligent way to manage this crisis? And of course, the answer is yes. Just as an example of something going right in another country, let's look at South Africa. South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, has, we complimented last week, really flattened his curve out, which is tough to do with an undereducated population that's in high, high degree of poverty. And he did it the tough way. He not only did all the things you would think, social distancing, he banned alcohol and tobacco. Now, tobacco particularly is crazy because what it does is it sets you up to die from COVID. 
but he also banned alcohol as a way to try and bring this thing under control. That took a lot of courage. I'm not saying it's necessary, but it took a lot of courage. From there, we can look around at other people that are doing great things. But I think before we do that any further for this week, we should probably turn to the question that was raised last week about REITs, R-E-I-T's. We said last time we talked about REITs, real estate investment trusts. They're getting hammered. The uh, the cheerleaders for the REIT industry go, oh, they've been hammered so bad, they must be a good buy by now because how much lower could their balance sheet go? And the answer is infinity. <laughs> what is a REIT? A real estate investment trust is a trust that's designed to own a certain type of real estate. Typically, they don't mix them. So if you have a REIT that specializes in multi-dwelling family units, it's going to own lots of apartment buildings everywhere. And its economic model is that you buy a share of the REIT, and what you're getting is a percentage share of all the real estate they own in that REIT. Okay, So you don't buy the apartment building yourself. You buy a share in the REIT that owns bunches of apartment buildings. REITs got very popular recently with condos. By the way, one of the markets they were touting until just two months ago was Miami, if you can believe it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they, they, we'll sell you a condo. By the way, we'll even sell you one above water if you like. <laughs> it's clearly selling one below water is very easy to do in a Miami. So a REIT makes its money if the rents it receives from the asset it owns, and it flows that asset up with very favorite tax status, through to the investor. Now, we know that there are REITs for multi-unit dwellings. We know there are commercial REITs for office buildings. There are commercial REITs for industrial properties. Uh, there are there's even, a, there's even a modified form of a REIT to own individual single-family homes, believe it or not. All that you need to know about REITs are, number one, what's the underlying asset that REIT owns? And how reliable is it that that underlying asset will continue to produce revenues at or above your expectation? Let me give you an example. There are a number of REITs that own shopping centers. Uh Uh-oh, that's bad because they're already getting cut, right? The rents aren't getting paid. And the the ones that are leveraged are in real trouble because they'll have disintermediation. Yeah, I saw something that the Simon Group was opening up malls in certain areas. And part of the tenant's responsibility in those malls is if the mall is open, they have to also be open. And and there's that conflict there if it's not safe. Well, I think it's just, and there's 49 of them, by the way. And what he did, what the Simon Group did is they picked the 49 that are in the states where basically they got a governor's clearance. They won't try that. That's done in California, I'm sure, or New York. Um, no, it's terrible. It's, it's an example of greed over, you know, and they would say, well, it's not greed, it's survival. Okay, I get it. I mean, I get the problem. Uh, as many people know, listen to this show, I have investments in hotels, which are in upside down right now. I have hotel uh, that are, by the way, kind I invest in, they're like family properties. I don't even invest in like something sexy like a, you know, a casino. I'm just talking about stuff that people can, uh, one of our properties is like a block and a half from Disneyland. How would you like to own a small hotel a block and a half from Disneyland? I don't think that's exactly going to produce the return you'd like. Um, so I, you know, I have, not right now. <laughs> no, and I have shopping centers where we're already giving we're giving people uh, rent forgiveness. We're giving rent deferrals. We're even in in one case we're recommending that we can help them with a CPA who can file for the PPP money if they need it. So it, it's a very very upside down world. What you need to know about REITs though is what's the underlying asset? If it's shopping centers, obviously. I don't have to tell you not to do that. Even multi-unit dwellings, though, are not a good thing because we don't have enough of the upside from the demand that's there. Lots more people need places to live, but we don't have enough demand with money to keep those units all full. And as those units drop, the way the leverage of a REIT works, you're taking the last sliver of profit off the top with a REIT and sending it back to your share owners. 
if the sliver goes away, you're going to pay all your bills before the shareholders are going to see a penny. So we have to look very carefully at REITs. It is not the time to buy a REIT of any type at this point. I would not want you to invest in commercial property because it's still going down in value. Multi-unit dwellings, too hard to predict. I certainly would not invest today in shopping centers, hotels, or office buildings. So if you're looking and single family dwellings, I would even be nervous about that, frankly. So if you know that real estate is in a, a really bad way right now, and you hear somebody as uh, silly as Seeking Alpha say, oh, well, but they have strong balance sheets, so they're underpriced right now. That's crazy. Strong balance sheets if the world were normal. Last time I checked, the world is not normal. Yeah, I mean, if we're still in the free fall, we do not know where the bottom's going to end up. No, we do so, not. So, I mean, and that's true for the stock market, but it's doubly true for real estate and just for the entire economy. Yeah, and just to get... And to give a positive spin as we close out this, this show, I'm a big believer that antibody testing will come along in 60 days. I was delighted that New York completed 15,000 tests just yesterday alone. I was even more delighted that the Belgians are claiming that they have a test that's 100% accurate as to positives and negatives and is 95% specific, meaning it can identify the coronavirus that's killing us from other coronavirus family members. So it's specific to this coronavirus, and it's 100% effective telling you positive or negative. That means we now know how many people have already gotten this thing, and who probably are not going to get it again. And I say probably because next week when we talk about antibodies, I'm going to discuss what it is that you need to know about antibodies, including the fact that of the 40 antibody tests today, at least 30 of them are complete garbage. So don't believe everything you read because when those garbage test results come in, they just cloud the environment. Look at what New York's doing. They've got a good test. Look at Stanford, Scripps, UCLA, Berkeley. Uh, look at Michigan. Uh, look at Belgium, of course. Uh, look at Germany. Those are the places that have good antibody tests. And as some of you know, and if you would like to see a copy of the paper, it's on our website. We wrote a memo to Governor Newsom where we said the way to re reopen the economy before you completely clean up this pandemic is to start issuing public health identity cards. I'll talk a little more about that next time when I talk more about immunity. And I'll also throw in, if not next time on the very following show, I want to start talking about a new word, antigens. So we now know about DNA RNA tests, which is the swab test. We've been talking a lot about what the antibody test is. And next week or the week after, if we have time, we will certainly get to antigen testing, which is another fascinating wrinkle in this whole thing, totally apart from vaccines. And with that, knowing that we are on the cusp of learning to deal with this rationally because we've already discovered the federal government's not coming to our rescue. I think we will start to slowly dig our way out of this mess, but it's going to be very tough because the federal government is not just being neutral, actually, it's being negative. And in fact, if it was just neutral, it'd be bad enough. With that, I wish everybody well. I'm glad to report that uh, oil's down 68% from a year ago. S&P 500 still down 3% from a year ago, even after this huge recovery on false values. And the Dow Jones is down about 10% from a year ago. So those of you who took our advice and invested in gold, which is up 34%, you're doing really well. Comparatively, you're doing phenomenally well. And that's because you looked at fundamentals in the economy, not at the sizzle. You're actually looking at what's underneath that sizzle. Invest that, you'll never have a problem. With that, thanks everybody for tuning in this week. Free to tell your friends. We'd love it if more people signed up for the podcast. And remember what Christy said at the outset. It'd be great if you could help us pay for all this. Thanks so much. Have a great week.
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. 